Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Commonwealth Voices is a podcast about citizens coming together to participate in democracy and influence the institutions that shape their lives. Welcome to Commonwealth Voices. I'm Royfield Brown. I'll be your host and guide in the series featuring stories from across the Commonwealth. The Commonwealth covers 20% of the world's land area and six continents, with an estimated population of 2.4 billion people, that is collectively a third of the world population, each with their own unique voice. The Commonwealth Foundation supports people's participation in democracy and development, and Commonwealth Voices brings you those people's stories. The Foundation recently hosted the Commonwealth People's Forum, focused on the theme of inclusive governance. Today I'm speaking to VJ Christian Ryan, the Director General of the Commonwealth Foundation. This week's session focuses on A Tale of Three Cities, which looks at governance through the eyes of current and former leaders of Commonwealth cities. Um, how did you choose the cities uh, that were on the panel this week? Because they really were um, a, a diverse trio. I think what we wanted to do was to demonstrate that there were municipal authorities that were going to be innovative in engaging with communities, with informal settlements, with citizens, with the very least stake in society. We wanted to demonstrate that you know, it is possible for planning processes in particular to be participatory, to be inclusive. It was not straightforward, of course, but we um, we, and we also recognise that in each of the instances, each of the cases that were presented, there was a counter, another side to the story. But nevertheless, we wanted to demonstrate that local governance systems are really important in enabling local uh, people to, uh, to live, lead their lives in a way that you know, enable them to fulfil their, their reasonable aspirations on a daily basis. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome, everybody, to the final day of the Commonwealth People's Forum. I'm Mr. G. It's been a pleasure to be hosting these events over the past three days. This whole experience has been somewhat of a journey of a discovery for me, and I've enjoyed having conversations with many of you, and I've been inspired by those of you that have been fighting injustice for decades. As a poet, I often wonder how I fit in with such struggle. And I was very much moved by the words of the Zimbabwean artist Owen Maseko, who had been in prison for his art, and he said that we must all use whatever creativity we have to get the message of freedom across. But once the message has been delivered, how do we hold governance to account? Which brings us to today's theme, which is accountable governance, understanding the imperatives for a renewed commonwealth. And so we will be starting today's discussion which will be a tale of three cities, and I'd like to introduce to you the chair, Gillian Slovo. Welcome to what I think is going to be a fascinating discussion on the general issue of accountability in governing, especially in local government. And I know how interesting it's going to be because I know how distinguished our panel are. So they are from my right, Mr. Khalid Bilal. He is the elected mayor of Belmopan, the capital city of Belize, and he was elected in 2005 and re-elected for a second three-year term in 2018. He's responsible for the daily administration of the city is a renewal of the compact between the city and its residents with a particular emphasis on engagement and in inclusiveness. He also has previously served two terms as aide to Belmopan area representative John Saldivar. To his right is Mr. Matthew Ryder. He's the deputy mayor for social integration, social mobility and community engagement. He leads the promotion of active citizenship across London and makes sure City Hall uses the best methods for measuring levels of social integration. He's a QC with a long-standing professional and personal interest in social justice, social mobility, and community engagement. 
He sat on a number of influential panels and working parties, including he is sitting on the current Lamy Review on black, Asian, and minority ethnic representation in the criminal justice system. And on his right is Mr. Babatandu Fashola, who is the Nigerian Minister of Power, Works, and Housing, a position he has held since 2015. He was the 13th governor of Lagos State in 2007 and was re-elected for a second term in 2011. He's an advocate with the rank of a senior advocate of Nigeria, and he was also the chairman of the Strategy Committee of the All Progressives Congress, which drafted the 2015 Manifesto of the Party. Welcome all. I am Gillian Slovo. I'm a South African-born playwright and novelist who, although I've lived most of my life in Britain, still feels very strong bonds to my mother country. So we're talking about A Tale of Two Cities. And Mr. Fashola, when I was thinking about this, I thought that mayoralities in London are relatively new to our city. They've certainly started when I was a conscious adult. And one of the things that I've noticed about them is that the mayor often gets a much better press than any of our other politicians. That people are more in favor of of a mayor, even if they come from a party that we don't vote for, then they generally are for MPs who come from a party that we don't vote for. And I was wondering, given that you are a minister now and have been a governor before, whether there is something easier about governing a city to please people or to get people to feel part of the city than governing a country. Well, happily, I don't govern a country. Um, I help the president to superintend one of his departments, which is my ministry. But I think that the reason why there is perhaps a sense of better connect with sub-national heads of government is that they are the most impactful in terms of what government should mean to people. And the national heads are perhaps more remotely concerned. I'd like to stress this by examples I gave when I was governor, especially when disasters happen. Human beings are the immediate victims of disasters. And what national governance heads do is just make a helicopter ride, say hello, and leave. But the burden of resettling people, providing water supply, getting schools back up, is that of the head of the municipal government. And in that sense, that is why there's a greater connect them. Thank you. And Mr. Balak, can you talk to me a bit about when you first took on this job, what were the biggest challenges facing you? And if you could also talk about it in relation to accountability and how you could work out whether your position was accountable to people, how you could better that. Certainly. I think one of the primary issues or challenges facing myself when I first assumed the office roughly three years ago was that of getting the community to buy in to the ideas that we had proposed as we campaigned um, for the office. In terms of accountability and whether or not we should be accountable to the people, of course we should be. Uh, It's public resources and finances that are being spent by municipal governments uh, around the world, really. And so one of the things that Uh, we have attempted to do is to make the spending uh, as well as the collection of those finances quite public. 
not only posting them on, on, on our website. Is it a good job being a mayor? It is. It is. Why? It is. Uh, you get to have an immediate and direct impact on the residents of your municipality, as the good gentleman alluded to. Uh, I think we're more accessible. Uh, we are on the ground day in and day out. We see the problems. The problems are brought to us uh, first and foremost. You know, uh, It's a tendency uh, to come directly to City Hall to have any issues that you might uh, be faced with or, or that are plaguing you address. Going to your MP uh, might take a little longer. Local councils have the ability to respond quicker uh, and in a, in a tangible way. And what about you, Mr. Ryder? You, your responsibility is for inclusivity. Mm. Um, what were the challenges facing you when you took on this job? I think the biggest challenges really was trying to uh, develop a new way of thinking about how you have inclusivity and integration in a modern global city like London. Uh, the debate that we've often had is about equality and, and diversity. And 20 years ago, when I was practicing as a lawyer, it was clear that some of those uh, concerns about quality and diversity were sometimes embryonic, sometimes quite controversial, sometimes not mainstream. And as a result, I think we've gone on a journey, most societies have gone on a journey, where they've understood that issues of equality and diversity, whether it's gender equality, ethnicity or whatever, are now mainstream concepts. So the challenge, in a sense, for me was to look at how you develop something as diffuse or as some people consider to be as difficult to understand as social integration or community engagement, and how you turn that into something which has intellectual rigour, how you develop it into a mainstream policy so that it underpins everything that the local government is doing. And also for myself, what was very important is how you subject your policies in that regard to the same kind of rigour that you would any other area. So I'm speaking very much in general terms here for reasons which I've, I've sort of will be obvious to anybody in London. I can't speak about individual we're, policies. We're just about to have an election, so he can't be seen to be electioneering in yeah. favour of any party. <laughs> so, um, so I can speak in general terms, but what, what, I, w what I would say is that it, it is really important to have robust ways of measuring what you do. And speaking to, to, to what was just mentioned there, is accountability in the modern environment means making your information accessible and being ethical in the way you handle your data, being literate in the way you handle your data, and making sure that the data and information which underpins your policy and which you gather through your policy is accessible to everybody and is subject to scrutiny, not just by those who you're interpreting it for in the way you interpret it, but for those who want the material so they can interpret it and examine it for themselves. Is, is this something, they, they both mentioned, the other two speakers, the, the necessity of, of accountability being, you have to make the information available. Is this something that you concentrated on as well? I'm sorry, Mr. Fashola. Invariably, um, you had to, because um, let's understand and go back to the principle, really, is representative governors, you are elected. And therefore, there must be a feedback, a response, an accounting mechanism. And the underpinning thing about accountability really is trust. So if you don't account, you lose trust. And Mr. Bilal, how did you try and inform your electorate? How did you create accountability in, in post? We're fortunate because we're, we're so small. 
as a nation, but also as a city. We're only some 20-something thousand plus residents that we still have you, that. You could go and meet every single pra- one of them in your two Practically, terms. yes, <laughs> I, I, I can. And we still have that sort of retail politics uh-huh. uh, at that level whereby, you know, you, you meet your constituents uh, every day as you go about everyday life. So in terms of trying to make sure that that contact is still there, I want to touch on something the Deputy Mayor addressed, and it's in terms of making sure that you put everything out there, and not only for the consumption of those who share your agenda or or are like-minded in terms of their outlook towards policy, but also so that others who might not be on the, the same political page as yourself can also look at it. And I find that that is where you might get even better ideas in terms of how you spend uh, the, the public finances and the projects that you undertake, because uh, an objective eye is very much needed in terms of criticism, in terms of you know, being on the inside, you might feel, all right, well, we're going to do it this way. But if you can present and put everything out there so that the public can look at it objectively, you might very well end up uh, and most likely will end up getting uh, even better ideas as to how you can improve on what you're already doing. I'm wondering, Mr. Ryder, you're deputy mayor of a city that is much bigger than 20,000 people. And also, I'm aware that on the issues that you deal with, and or diversity of social engagement, there are people who have very different views. Is that something that you're always aware of, of talking to, uh, uh, as uh, Mr. Balaj just said, not just people who agree with you, but people who don't? And how do you manage that? Uh, you have to talk to everybody, I think. But any, you can't talk to everybody in a 20-plus million no. city. I mean, it's probably fitting that I'm sitting between these two gentlemen. <laughs> We're a lot bigger than uh, this capital city. We're a lot smaller in population than Lagos, which mm-hmm. is, you know, one of the largest cities in the world in terms of population. It's so large, it has personality of its own compared to smaller cities. So I think you have to understand that each city has its own character. London is very much a, a global hub in many ways, and so... In terms of size, we're large, but also in terms of our commerce, we're large. And so you have to give uh, your information in a way that is relevant to everybody, accessible to everybody. And if you're saying, how do you speak to those who might disagree with you, the mechanism that's in place in London is we have an assembly, which are 14 members who are from particular uh, areas of London, voted, uh, elected as particular members of London, 11 who are general across London, who, who um, therefore have a brief across all of London. And they hold the mayor accountable. Of course, in any administration, the assembly is going to contain people who have very different views from the mayor and are the voice of those that disagree with him. And then I think we have, I think every administration places an important priority on community engagement, which is a, a more and more important thing and takes place in a number of different ways, whether it's online, whether it's small meetings. I don't think, it's, I don't think anybody would think anymore it's acceptable to just have some representative people come in and visit you in City Hall. You shake their hands and say, see you next year. And so there must be a real effort to go outside City Hall, to engage with communities. Do you ever have the problem that you focus on communities and other communities are saying what's so special about them? Every day. Well, I think you have to be fairly sanguine about it. You have to kind of understand that one community will need your attention one day. The, the, the community that's saying, why aren't you talking to us today? You will be talking to them tomorrow. You have to reassure them of that. And you have to understand that your message is getting out broadly. So um, by way of an example, uh, when we talk about social integration, it's sometimes perceived euphemistically as racial integration or ethnic, ethnic integration. And people think that's just kind of a code for racial integration. It's very important to emphasize 
when we're talking about social integration, we're talking about older Londoners feeling more integrated into the city. We're talking about younger Londoners feeling they have a place in the future in a city that is difficult sometimes, you know, where income inequality is increasing. You have to make sure that you feel LGBT Londoners feel not just tolerated, but that the city is very much theirs and that they feel empowered and, and happy to have a home in the city. You have to make sure that it's accessible to disabled London. So, and also, very, very importantly, social class is a big issue. You have to make sure that London is somewhere where it isn't just accessible to those who have education and affluence, but it, that social class isn't a barrier to your, your enjoyment of life in London. So you have to make sure constantly, you know, every single time I speak as here, you have to make sure that you're emphasising the breadth of your message and the inclusivity of your message. There is, there is one thing, I, I, if I could, um, for one moment, yeah. um, just wanted to mention about, the, before we lose the topic. Um, I have a particular personal obsession with data and information, partly because of my background as a data and information lawyer, but it's also, I think, important in terms of modern governance. And if we imagine... Uh, a business model for businesses of 20 years ago or 15 years ago, people would have said uh, at the cutting edge of business, businesses will be driven by data in the future. Data will be everything. Data will, will drive every business. It will be the fuel of future business. And I think we're now entering an era where that's moved on from simply being a commercial concern into being a concern as to how everything runs and, and how public services will run and how governance will run. will be very much built on, has to be built on, the huge amount of data that cities produce in order to be able to understand how their citizens live. We have to start thinking now, how do we use data <coughs> responsibly, effectively? How do we allow people to feel ownership of the data that's being shared and being gathered from them? And not be afraid to then use that data in a way that makes the city more effective, but make sure we are being careful, considerate, proportionate, accessible, legal in the way we approach a new challenge, which will be data-driven cities. Which is a particular challenge, given all the stuff we now know about <laughs> Facebook, etc. That's why I mentioned it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Mr. Fashola, there are two questions on the tip of my tongue, so I might ask them both, and, and you choose which one you want to answer first, which is, I mean, one of them is about, before your first 100 days, what did you really want to do that to change what had come before and how did you set about doing it? But the other question was more part of the conversation that we were having as well, which was to do with, are the issues of how you talk to different communities and diversity the same in Lagos? I noticed you were nodding about talking to different groups, so I'll come to you as well, but perhaps that's the better one to start with. It, was this an issue for you? Because we know that this is a hot topic in Britain about all sorts of different interest groups. And I take Mr. Ryder's point. It's not just about race. It's about age. It's about class. It's yeah. about um, sexual um, positioning. One of the things I did immediately, the election results came and I had won, was to engage the services of a polling company. And I asked that company to go around the local governments within the state, and there were 57 of them, and to ask them that now that you have elected a governor, what do you expect of that governor? And when the results came, we identified broadly six issues. Employment, power, water supply, infrastructure, particularly roads, drainage problems, and I think uh, schools. 
And then with that, I asked that each local government set up a small town hall meeting of young people, women, and adult male. So we would go, so we went from local government to local government saying that, look, we've got this poll results saying that these are your issues. Does it represent what you want? And we would get the affirmative oftentimes. And then ask them, we can't do everything at the same time. Which do you want first? So from community to community, the choices were different. Some wanted their roads first. Some wanted their schools first. Some wanted work and so on and so forth. And that became a basis for us to plan and prepare our very first budget. So does that mean that you then had a program which gave to each different community different things? That they chose. Worked on? Yeah, that, that they, they chose. chose. And how did you know the communities were representative of their own communities? You can't discount the possibility of misrepresentation, but you also cannot prescribe mm-hmm for the community who their spokesperson should be. But we allowed local people to constitute the team that we were going to meet with, and largely there were no dissents. And because that was important, we were paying attention. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I did was to embed my team almost like flies on the wall in the audience to get concurrent. So we always went back to the office to say, okay, how good is what we've picked up? Now, going back to the first question was... Mm -hmm. um, The challenge facing you. Well, there there were so many challenges, but I think the one that hit me uh, fully in the face was the security problem in the first week. All of my plans took backstage because we were having then bank robberies almost twice or thrice in a week, and there was really no response. And the police was national. So, and it just reached tipping point when a young lady was murdered uh, and robbed, robbed and murdered for a handset, a telephone set mm-hmm. But thankfully, we, uh, and, and I've spoken to the Security Trust Fund earlier in my remarks, that we just got everybody to get involved. Got the bankers, the elite, the media, that look, we need to resource the police because I then found out that that was the main problem. We started giving citations for bravery, for results, and the annual meetings were really the policemen and women's show. And, and they felt a sense of appreciation for, for, for the sacrifice they were making to keep all of us safe. So what you're also talking about is making the community understand the police is part of them rather than separate from them and there to serve them. Oh, yes. And the police to feel that the community likes rather than hates them, which can happen with the police. Oh, yes. Interesting as you make that. I I recall we have a couple of festival occasions, Christmas, Easter. And one of the things I recall often saying was that, have you visited your police station on Christmas Day? Did you take some food to them? Did you take some drinks there? And it doesn't matter the quantity, but it's the gesture that you remember that they are there. Feel a sense of appreciation. And also asking the police when I interact with them to ask the officers to just go visit. Knock on people's door and just ask if everything is okay. And create that bond and trust between the police and the community they serve. 
What about you, Mr. Bilal? You were nodding when Mr. Ryder was talking about how do, you, how do you get to hear the voices of people who disagree with each other. Can you talk about that and also about what your challenge was when you started? Certainly. I think a big part of it is ensuring that you communicate effectively with the residents of your municipality, your city, your town, uh, whatever uh, scale or, or, or size uh, that you might be a big part of what has traditionally happened is that the politician gets elected. They say, well, I was supported by the majority. They clearly want us to follow through with the plans that we had outlined as we campaigned. And so there is really no room for dissenting voices. They, we, we will ignore those with a different point of view. And I think that is a, the, the old politics that we sincerely need to get away from as quickly as possible. Uh, because those dissenting voices uh, have the right to be heard. Uh, and it is coming from a place of, of he who feels it knows it. In terms of community participation and having people involved and feeling included, the community must also be made to feel that their voices are being heard. You know, it's one thing to call a town hall meeting, for example. I do that uh, in Belmopan population, let's say 20,000, and 200 people turn up. That's 1% of, of, of the residents uh, in the city. And uh, it is that 1% that is clearly the most vocal. Uh, I would interpret that as extremely interested in, in what is happening uh, in terms of the administration of the city at that point in time. But then you have to account for the other 99% that are not there. Mm -hmm. uh, and what does that mean? Uh, is it that uh, they choose to be silent? Is it that uh, you need to find other ways of reaching out to them, as you said, in terms of you know social media that is so prevalent these days, uh, other means of communicating mm -hmm. with them, other means of having them being able to communicate with you. And so I think that's a big part of it. In terms of challenges, it has always come back to me for community buy-in. Uh, we need to know that the community is on board with what we're doing. Uh, if they're not, then we need to know why and what we need to do to to, to change in order to better serve the, the concerns that, that they have brought forward to us. And a challenge when you first started? Kind of changing the overall attitude around the city. Um, we, it, there was a prevailing sense of complacency, of uh, just going about daily life, accepting the status quo. We wanted people to feel involved. Uh, we wanted them to take ownership of the city. And it was to that end that we kind of rolled out a few of the, the plans and programs that we had implemented. Uh, we're looking at introducing um, a core of city commissioners uh, responsible for different sectors like health, education, uh, civil society. And so that is one of the main things that we're trying to get accomplished at this point in time. And problems or successes with it? Well, the problem is, again, uh, the, the, the cross-section that you bring together uh, it will never be fully representative of, of the entire community. And so that uh, has been a bit difficult. Coming to your question in terms of how you deal with, um, with interacting with different groups within the city, mm -hmm. uh, going beyond race again, but also talking about uh, age groups, uh, uh, gender, um, LGBT, etc. Um, that is also extremely important in terms of making sure that you're not excluding anybody, that everybody has that at least the opportunity, if, if, whether they avail themselves of it or not, that they at least have the opportunity to have their voices heard and to have their considerations taken into account as, as you plan and chart the way forward, making sure that you in, 
incorporate the, the feedback that you get from them into your vision as well as the things that you execute. You all have talked about the necessity to listen properly to people. Do you, and I'm asking you this, Mr. Ryder, in sometimes feel that you need to find a way of getting the people to listen to each other better and to listen to actually what's happening better? Is this something that ever ever feels to you like it's not just a one-way street and how do you get the other? I mean, it's definitely not a one-way street in the sense that you I think it's a mistake to think all you do is listen and then do what you think the, the, some people who you're talking to want. You listen, but you lead. I think in terms of trying to find ways to get people to listen to each other, that's very much part of what we believe social integration is about, which is finding those moments within the life of a city where people come together and start to interact with each other in a more meaningful way. In some senses, think of this as a softer side, but no less meaningful side of how you... Are you talking about social occasions? Yeah. yeah. How you communicate with people uh-huh. and how they communicate with each other. So there's two things I would say on that. The first thing is that I think on the softer side of things, you have to understand, and it goes to the point Mr. Fischola was making earlier about city versus national. A city has an identity. Citizens of a city have a sense of identity. And that's sometimes a more cohesive sense of identity around a city than it is around a nation. Mm-hmm. Because you come together as Londoners, sometimes in a more cohesive way than you might come together as members of the United Kingdom. And so understanding, speaking to that collective sense of identity of a city, I think is an underestimated but very important part of communicating with the citizens. To use London stereotypes, you know, if the yoga mother in Hampstead and the young guy on a housing estate in Lewisham or the hipster in East London all feel that they're Londoners, no matter what their different (coughs) views might be and their different lifestyles might be, they can coalesce around that sense of being proud of their city and feeling connected with each other through London. So the second thing I would say is we try and find those moments where that sort of exchange happens. So an example might be the early years of having children, where people can be more open to meeting new people than in other situations. But there are lots of examples. And the last administration on the mayor, this administration... Any, anybody looking at governing a city is trying to find those occasions where people can speak to each other through that part of your life. It can be the arrival into a city mm-hmm. when you're first there and you're most open or you're moving to a new part of the city. And that's the moment when you start speaking to people who wouldn't ordinarily be the people who you might be interacting with. Thank you all. So I'm now going to open to questions... Thank you. I'm Ken Bluestone. I work with um, Age International. I'm also here representing Common Age. My question is, um, I'd be very interested if yourselves as uh, leaders of cities have any uh, experiences of the activism and the contributions of older people in terms of accountability in your own cities. Yeah, I think it's an interesting question because in Africa there is a general cultural deference to elderly people. And one of the things that you, I experienced was also the sense of involvement. They are more likely to come and vote, and they are more likely to stay online. And I recall the feedback in my first election after the debates uh, with a lot of elderly people who stayed on the queue for 
longer hours than was really uh, expected of them, just cast their vote. So they were a strong voice. They were a voice of conscience. They were a voice of control about the direction in which the state uh, should be evolving. And they are often represented at my 100-day community reports. Even if they were uninvited, they would come. <laughs> and they always had a, a right of preeminent sitting. In fact, they were usually in the front row. What about you, Mr. Bilal? Do you have uninvited old people? Uh, certainly. <laughs> <laughs> certainly, but I want to, I, I think his question kind of split along two lines, and there's certainly the element of activism on, be, uh, on the part of the, the elderly community in Belmopan and in Belize on a whole. Uh, what two of the organizations that I myself work most closely with are HelpAge, uh, which is responsible for advocating on behalf of the elderly population of the country, as well as the National Council on Aging. And so we try to meet with them uh, at their request, uh, as well as at ours. They, are, they form a part of the groups that we try to target in terms of making sure that they're par a part of any consultations that we might have on the way. And um, as, the gen as the good gentleman said, uh, they are they're the ones that participate the most in anything that, that we have, particularly our town hall meetings. It's probably 95% retired and elderly people and uh, we recognize that they do have a significant contribution to make. Retirement does not banish you to the dustbin of participation in administration of, of your municipality or city. And so in terms of advocating for accountability, it hasn't been there uh, that much from our elderly community. It tends to come more from the middle-aged bracket. Uh, those are the ones who tend to be pushing the envelope. Were it to come from the elderly uh, and aging population, be more than welcome. You know, They have a vast uh, amount of knowledge and experience which they can share. And so, and what about you? Uh, I share the same experience. I think that you know, it's interesting. There, there are some who are concerned that in some aspects of governance in the world, older politicians need to make way for younger politicians. That's sometimes a concern. And so balancing the importance of having a young voice alongside the importance of, of having making sure older people have a voice too is, is a constant challenge but a very, very important one to, to deal with. I think probably all, all I would say is that um, it, it is really significant to make sure that you are not just consulting with but we would describe it as co-designing with. It's not enough to simply say, we're consulting you on this policy, what do you think? And we do that with strategies. We put out our strategies to consultation. You must design them with those people. My name is Husiami. I'm from South Africa. I was just wondering, if we were to have a panel of local people to give their own experiences in terms of, of your leadership, was there going to be any correlation of what you're saying? and what ordinary people have observed. So I wonder if people were sitting there, what was going to be their response? Thank you. The point about difference reports, can I just say something on that? I think you hit a really interesting and important point, but I think it's important because it's, it's something we need to be really careful about. I think there is a conception that those who sit in situations of political leadership, whether elected leaders or appointed um, uh, civic leaders like myself, uh, are out of touch and are going to um, be some form of elite who are going to not necessarily provide a report that if you had ordinary people providing, they would provide. And there may well be good foundation and, and good reason why people can, can have that concern because of previous history. 
But going too far the other, letting the pendulum swing too far in the other direction is where we swing into a populism and a, and a populism about issues that are sometimes not necessarily based in the full picture. And so we shouldn't lose, while we're trying, trying, trying very hard to cope with the problem you are identifying, which is that political leaders need to be representative of the voice of the people, we shouldn't lose, fact, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that representative leadership from those who have the full picture and the full information is an important aspect of democracy. If you allow decision-making and reports and, and thoughtful uh, ideas of policy to simply descend to the crowd, you're going in a dangerous direction. So you need informed decision-making from good, responsible leaders that need to be in touch with ordinary people, but the two things must sit together, in my personal opinion. Otherwise, you swing from one extreme to the other, and it doesn't take much for us all to imagine uh, a, a situation where people are elected on a platform of populism that isn't necessarily the, the right one. Just very quickly on the point of accountability and whether the reports from the common man in our municipality or city uh, would kind of mesh or align with what we have presented here. There's always room for improvement, um, brother. You know, without a doubt, uh, I will be the first to say that I am not as accountable to the people of my municipality as I should be. But it doesn't mean that I don't strive towards that and expect them to hold me to that standard. And so that is, I think that is the mindset and the approach and the mentality that any good leader should really take on. Thank you all three. We could have gone on and they were sorry we couldn't um, answer more questions, but thank you very much. So that's it for today's podcast, but you can continue the discussion online by tweeting us at Commonwealth.org or by finding us on Facebook with the same username. That's Commonwealth.org. You'll find links on Facebook and Twitter to Commonwealth Insights, policy briefs that explore a whole range of issues such as these we've explored in this show. Anything from migration, climate justice to women negotiating peace. We implore you to go onto Apple Podcasts or a podcatcher of your choice and go and write us a review because it helps visibility for the show and gets more people then to be aware of us so they can listen too. I'm Rafael Brown. You've been listening to Commonwealth Voices. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.